1: Saltwater is the usual habitat for mollusks, yet the area surrounding the cross, up and down the Mississippi River, is home to the largest diversity of freshwater mussels in the world. They help purify the water and are food for many different kinds of wildlife, including raccoons, otters, herons, and egrets. For the native peoples who populated this area before a European settlement, freshwater mussels were an important food source. From the harvested shells, they also constructed tools and utensils. A German immigrant named Johann Friedrich Beppel arrived in the Muscatine, Iowa area in 1891, anxious to find the perfect native mussel that closely matched its cousins in Europe. He found them in abundance in the Mississippi River and set up shop. Using tubular saws, round blanks could be cut from the thick shells. The blanks would then be ground to a standard thickness and then faced, drilled, and polished to produce... a button. With the invention in 1904 of large machines that could standardize button cutting, drill buttonholes, and carve a design onto the face of the button, the production of buttons from freshwater mussels in the late 1800s would balloon into a multi-million dollar industry. The button industry led to the endangerment and extinction of about 70% of North America's native mussel population within 50 years. It also led to child labor, unfair business practices, unrest among skilled workers, and corruption among owners and management.
2: And that eventually led to murder. My name is Matt Rusgan, and I was one of the best cutters in the business. I worked for the Wisconsin Pearl Button Company here in La Crosse. The company started in 1900 with 50 employees. Within two years, we had 225 employees and had cut buttons from 1,400 tons of shells. Yeah, business was booming. Cutting is not an easy job. It takes a lot of training and practice because the shells can have different thicknesses and surface areas. You have to be efficient and waste as little of the shell as you can. You can't just pull any Tom, Dick, or Harry off the street and produce the number of buttons that we were churning out. All of the cutters, including me, couldn't figure it. We were turning out buttons by the ton and yet our paychecks never reflected it. You see, we were paid by the gross weight of our buttons, but none of us were allowed to watch our buttons go on the scale. Everyone felt we were getting the short end of the stick. <laughs> Management. bunch of horn, Swagglers, if you ask me? Never trusted those fat cats. All the cutters were fed up with it. I was fed up with it. Tensions were already high after the news of what was happening in Muscatine, Iowa, the pearl button capital of the world. There had been several strikes down there. Most would be settled within a week, but one work stoppage lasted 61 days. It all added to the tension. By this time, button workers were starting to get organized enough to take on the factory owners. Yeah, tensions were peaking. The first part of June in 1910, management introduced this ratbag, bag, John Sturdier, as the new superintendent of our factory. He was on the job for one week. One week. And he hands me a paycheck for $11.09. I thought it was some kind of damn joke. $11.09? I figured my check. I wasn't some moron from New York or wherever the hell Sturdier came from. I knew for a fact that my paycheck should have been $14 on the nose. 14 not 11 and some change. I had had it. One Saturday, I waited for Sturdier to come out the factory, and when I saw him, I walked right up to him, and at a distance of less than five feet, I pulled out a revolver, and I put three slugs in that cheating bastard, and I said, there take that you Did I feel bad? Did I feel remorse? Hell no. That SOB got exactly what he deserved. After the shooting I ran into the swamp between the north and south sides of town threw my gun in the Lacrosse River and tried to figure my escape. The hunt for me was immediate. Police Chief Weber called out every man on the force and sent them in every direction. After seven hours, they found me hiding in the woodshed of my good buddy, John Paul Wada. The cops had talked to John earlier, and he didn't give me up, but John was never a very good liar. The police came back, started searching, and that's when they found me. The papers immediately said I would plead guilty, but ultimately I pled insanity. On November 12th, the jury found me to be sane and two days later, Judge Higby sentenced me to life in Wapon State Prison. Twenty-three years later, I was granted a pardon from the Governor of Wisconsin. <laughs> Ironically, 1933 was the same year the Wisconsin Pearl Button Company was sold to an outfit in Muscatine, Iowa. I was pleased the company enjoyed such a slow and painful death. They had greedily over-harvested the freshwater mussels, and they got what they deserved. Certainly, the installation of the lock and dam system and the pollution in the Mississippi at that time didn't help. The final coffin nail in the pearl button industry came by way of two new inventions. The plastic button and this crazy new contraption called the zipper.
1: One year after the murder of John Studier in La Cross, labor unrest and violence erupted in Muscatine, Iowa. The local police were forced to hire additional men from Chicago and St. Louis to help maintain order. The violence only increased until three companies of state militia had to be called in. Muscatine remained under martial law for four whole days. The governor of Iowa was compelled to join the negotiations. At the end of May 1911, labor and management agreed to terms, but incidents of violence continued into the following year. Before his pardon, Matt Ruskin was assigned as a laborer at the State School for the Deaf as part of a work furlough. At the age of 59, he worked for the WPA during the Second World War. Ruskin lived to be 88 years old, dying in 1971 in Walworth County. And now I'd like to welcome in Anita taylor Doring, Senior Archivist and the Archives Department Manager at the La Crosse Public Library, who did some of the initial research for this story.
0: As mentioned in this episode, Muscatine, Iowa, was the pearl button capital at the turn of the century and was home to many factories that made buttons from the shells of freshwater mussels harvested from the Mississippi River. Across his factory management, as well as the working class, looked to Muscatine as the leader in the industry, and all involved parties would have been keenly aware of the trouble brewing there. A 21st century knowledge of work safety is not needed to understand that the working conditions were clearly dangerous and unhealthy. Ironically, the Wisconsin Pearl Button owner, D.W. McWillie, seemed to think he treated his workers fairly and that they would not organize in his factory. The murder of John Studier, the factory's superintendent in 1910, came near the beginning of this tumultuous and long battle between owners and workers. In April 1911, La Crosse Tribune article stated 800 women workers walked out of their jobs and effectively shut down the Pearl Button factories in Muscatine. But McWillie remained confident and commented, There is no talk of a strike here. We treat our girls at the La Crosse plant right. We are satisfied with their work, and I believe that all of the girls are satisfied with their wages. We have heard no talk of a button workers' strike here, and I think it will not affect our plant. Clearly, he was wrong. Seventeen days later, the headline read General Walkout Declared Nearly All of the Girls at Pearl Button Works Quit Today. A union organizer from Chicago named Margaret Finnegan was sent to organize the button workers in La Crosse. Eventually, the strike was settled through arbitration, and the Button Cutters Committee, representing the labor of men, was also involved in the negotiations. In August 1912, advertisement touting the great working conditions at the Wisconsin Pearl Button Company included a line that stated, Any differences or grievances that may arise are settled by an arbitration committee, on which committee there is an equal representation of the company and employees and a third disinterested party. During this time in the early 20th century, women were not usually thought of as leaders and rabble-rousers in America's industries. A young woman from Muscatine connected with the button industry there became just such an organizer. In her youth, Ora McGill, who went by her middle name of Pearl, had dreams of becoming a schoolteacher but needed to earn money to attend a teacher's college. Her uncle, a button factory owner, hired her as an industrial spy to help inform him of possible labor, strife, and unionization. She entered the workforce during the heyday of freshwater button manufacturing and quickly ceased spying on the other workers. Instead, she became an advocate and union organizer. Thanks to a collection of family letters held at the Iowa Women's Archives at the University of Iowa Libraries, we know that Pearl served as recording secretary of the Button Workers Protective Union, an affiliate of the American Federation of Labor. Pearl became a strike worker for the Button Workers, traveling to Chicago with the Women's Trade Union League. She made speeches to local unions in industrial cities across the country, including St. Louis, New York, and Boston, to raise money to support the strikers in Muscatine. She continued to be an outspoken activist and organizer during other labor strikes, as well as in the early 1910s, and was inducted into the Iowa Labor Hall of Fame posthumously in 2006. While it is often argued that the Chautauqua Circuit and temperance movement helped prepare women for leadership roles in the suffrage movement, the Women's Trade Union League was doing similar things to teach women how to give effective speeches, mediate conflicts, and organize labor unions. Finally fulfilling her dream of attending college in 1913, Pearl enrolled in what is now the University of Northern Iowa at Cedar Falls, obtaining a teaching certificate. She taught at a few rural schools on and off from 1913 until her untimely death in 1924. When Pearl came home from visiting a friend the evening of April 30, 1924, someone was waiting for her. Only 29 years old, she was shot and killed in front of her home. It is still an unsolved mystery as to who did the murderous deed or why. If you would like to learn more about Pearl McGill's story, a book by Jeffrey S. Copeland published in 2012 titled shell games the life and times of pearl mcgill industrial spy and pioneer labor activist is available for checkout from the lacrosse public library and the winding rivers library system thanks for listening